Jesus and about how he interacts. And sometimes I think that when we're in praise and worship, it's almost like a parent hearing their kids sing in the other room. And they just kind of want to walk there and stand in the doorway and see what their kids are doing. Amen? Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm drinking out of my big cup today because be in prayer for my voice that it holds out. I know it'll hold out. I say things like that, like God's not going to get me to where we need to be, you know. He may stop the bus right at that stop, but he'll get us there, amen? Amen. Um, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 through 16. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We're starting a new series this week called 10 Questions That the World Is Asking That the Church Needs to Answer. Um, Statistically, we live in a post-Christian nation. You guys know that, right? America was once a Christian nation. What's amazing is when you talk to missionaries, the world still sees us as a Christian nation. The world still sees Americans as Christians, and they actually assume the behavior of Christians is what, or the behavior of Americans is how Christians act. Now, as many of us know, even even church members don't always behave like Christians should act. Amen. It's okay. I know you guys got mad this week at somebody, or you know. Um, we'll, we'll get to there, we'll get there, okay. Um, our postmodern culture puts a lot of faith in science and scientific discovery, right? That science is going to kind of engineer our way out of all the different troubles we have. This actually started, you know, I don't want to get too, in, too much into history, but actually during the Enlightenment, one of the things was is that the science of the day was able to feed people in a way that they weren't able to be fed before. And so science has improved the lives of people over the generations to the point now where people really do kind of think science has the answers, right? The problem with science is that science has only ever dealt with the how and not the why, right? That if you ever go back in science far enough, there's always that unanswerable why. Well, why did these things occur? Or what was the great cause that everything else was the effect of? Because you can't have the effects we see without there being some starting cause. Even if you take it back to the Big Bang, there's nowhere else in nature where molecules just all coalesce into one center point in the universe and then explode again, right? So we know that at some point, everything was kind of set into motion and science can tell us why, but it can't tell us how. Science is no savior, right? And there are many questions that the Lord has given to the church to answer, to answer and to be the answer. And so the first one I'm going to go over today is, what rules do you have to follow to be a Christian? Now, why would I start there? Because this is what we've inherited, church. We've inherited a view of the church that looks, as a, looks at us as a set of beliefs that say what we can't do. No matter how we see ourselves, and we don't see ourselves that way, no, we see ourselves as awesome, right? And I see us as awesome, and I know we're awesome, but we have to fight against an entire generation whose primary means of determining whether or not you were a Christian were behavioral. Did you do this? Do you drink, chew, smoke, you know, whatever? Do you drink, chew, or date guys that do, right? 
That was the, if you did those things, then, then you weren't following Christ. We had different rules. And so the, the real question became, based on the fellowship you were in, what were you allowed to do and not to do? I've gone to churches to be a preacher and didn't know how I was supposed to dress when I went to preach there because there were some churches run, run you women out if you're wearing pants, right? Run us guys out if we're not wearing a tie, amen? I only wear a tie now, by the way, because Kristen says I'm more believable in a tie. She doesn't... She says I'm not... I just don't look as trustworthy without the tie on. Like, you put the tie on, you're like, I'm going to listen to that guy. That guy's got a tie, right? I learned in business that if you walk into a building wearing a tie and a nice coat, you could just frown and walk past anybody. No one will ask you questions. Whoa, guy with a tie is coming through, right? But there was a time where we put things like ties and dresses, and we made that a standard of conduct to determine whether or not someone's heart was right with God. Can you imagine how much makeup they put on, what kind of earrings they wore, all kinds of things, because we wanted some way to determine who was a Christian and who was not. not. What it was was we gave up our quest for holiness and we substituted with legalism because it was a lot easier to follow rules than it was to figure out what God wanted out of us. It was a lot easier when someone came in to say you were a Christian or you weren't a Christian because you did this or you didn't do that than it was to actually get to know the person and actually get in their life a little bit, right? And so we we substituted that. So I I love that. This all came about when I I was talking to the Lord, praying, you know, and I'm like, what should I preach on? And he gives me the, the, the series, and I'm like, okay, now, what should this one be? And I kept seeing that bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Anyone ever been cut off by somebody with that bumper sticker, right? (laughs) Anyone ever had someone wave to you, if you know what I mean, with that bumper sticker on, right? Um, Kristen actually told me a long time ago, I drive too aggressively to have a fish on my car. She she said, I'm not allowed to have a fish because sometimes I, I, I'm not gonna, I don't speed, right? No, John, you're here, right? So I don't speed. Um, No, but occasionally I will push the limits of where I think the police will worry about whether or not I'm speeding, right? Um... But that bumper sticker kept coming in my head because that bumper sticker got a lot of flack for a lot of years, didn't it? You know, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. So, you know, if I, you know, steal from the company or if I, you know, cheat on my wife or whatever, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Hey, you know, so there's the balance, right? Because on the one side, you have grace, which says, you know, I am forgiven for everything and God loves me and he forgives me. And on the other side, man, should there be some sort of standard for behavior for Christians? I mean, Christians shouldn't steal from companies or cheat on their wives or run over my dog, right? Whatever the level is, what are the rules that we set and say, okay, in order to be a Christian, I have to have you do this. Well, what are those rules? How do we set those boundaries? So what is, let's go to Matthew 5, 48. We're going to start there and I'm going to move somewhere else. But I want, because if any verse has ever messed me up as a Christian, this is the verse that does it, okay? Matthew 5, go to the very end of the chapter, last verse, 48. When you get there, say, my, you're handsome, pastor. Thank you, Mona. Mona's like, Mona's like my mom. She has always got my back on those things. You know what I'm saying? I, I joke with Josh because Josh's mom comments on Facebook and stuff like that. And, and my mom's always like, oh, I'd love to come to your church. And I'm thinking, no, mom, no, because I love my mom. But you know she'd be up there trying to get smuts off your face while you're preaching or whatever. No, mom, right? So thank you, Mona. So chapter 5, verse 48, it says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Man, that's... That's unfair, right? That's not, that doesn't seem like attainable, does it? That doesn't seem like, like one day there's a box I can check off that says, good, I am perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. I've done that, right? That's a, that's a tough one when you're going down the list to knock that one out. 
And yet there it is in Matthew 5, 48. And, and I, I, I've, can I say I don't like that verse, right? Because he's asking me to do something that I know in my heart I can't do. You know, I've known people who've walked away from the faith because they said, I can't go back to the faith because I know I will fail God. I know I'm going to mess up. I know if I go back and call myself a Christian, then I'm going to do stuff, and it's going to make Christians look bad, it's going to make me look bad, so they don't even try. I've known people who've made that decision and walked away the faith because of that. And sometimes when I look at verses like this, it scares me a little bit. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, luckily, somebody else wanted to ask Jesus that exact question because this is the Sermon on the Mount we're here. We're going to come back to the Sermon on the Mount, but let's head over to uh, Matthew chapter 19. I'm not going to run you through the entire Bible, just about half of it. We'll stay in Matthew from here on out, okay? So Matthew 19, if you're on your phones, scroll down to verse 16 on your tablets. I feel like those are cheating because I feel like if I say turn to Habakkuk, everybody should panic, right? <laughs> if I say find Haggai, everyone should get that look on their face like, oh my gosh, where's Haggai? No, it's, the problem with Haggai, it's only like two pages long in most Bibles, right? And it's like right in there by Zephaniah and you can never find the thing, right? But now we have phones, we just push Haggai. That's, that's it's cheating, isn't it, Jeff? Right? Um, who grew up doing Bible drills? Come on. So Matthew 19, verse 16 Starts off with, and behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? I initially wanted to read the story out of Luke because I love the story in Luke, but I realized that Matthew adds one word that Luke and Mark don't. If you know what the synoptic gospels are, it means Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share a lot of the same stories, but they're coming at them from three different viewpoints, and so they remember different things about it. And whereas Matthew and as Luke and John say, What must I do? Matthew puts in that word deed. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And you get the idea of the man coming to Jesus, and he's thinking, okay, this Jesus guy's got it going on. Man, man knows his, I mean, he just preaches, and the authority of God, and the sick are healed, dead are raised. I mean, we're in chapter 11, right? So some stuff's going on by chapter 11, and Jesus has proven that he is at least a prophet, right? And this, this guy's actually going to make a confession that even the disciples haven't made yet here in a second, because he says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, the Jews knew that in the world to come, life would be eternal. So he was asking how to be included in the Messiah's kingdom. What I mean by that, another little thing about the Bible, Matthew is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. Matthew kept the Jews in mind. That's why in Matthew, you see him use the word kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God, because for the Jews, it was a blasphemy to use the word God in vain, so much so that they would avoid saying it whenever possible. So Matthew says kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God like it says in other places. And what he's saying here, what must I do to have eternal life? He's actually acknowledging that he believes Jesus is the Messiah that is going to bring about the kingdom of God. So he's making a confession in that statement that the disciples haven't made yet. Because in order to ask this question of Jesus, he had to assume that Jesus had this answer, right? So Jesus, what do I have to do? But he says, what good deed do I have to do, right? What's that one thing? Like, if I got to check off a box, Jesus, and I check off that box, and we are good, me and you, we're, we're fine there, just check that box, what is it I have to do to have eternal life? So Jesus, and I have to believe he knew what he was doing the entire way through this, starts with, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one good, 
if you would, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And this is my favorite answer to Jesus in the whole Bible. You ready for it? He said to him, which ones? <laughs> so, <laughs> I like that, right? This is a smart guy, right? Because, because Jesus is going to go, right? It's already up there, right? That you're not going to murder, you're going to commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Those are the easy ones, right? I am really great at not murdering people. I have been absolutely perfect as far as I know in not murdering anybody my entire life. Right? I was in the military for six years, and the most we did were training exercises. So even in the context of being in the military for six years, as far as I know, no one was ever bombed from my ship while I was on it. Right? So I'm pretty sure I'm clear on murder. That's an easy one, right? Adultery, 21 years in, so far so good. Right? <laughs> so far, I have been pretty great about not committing adultery. That's just, you know, it's not been one of those things like, oh my gosh, I wonder if today I'm going to commit adultery. Man, I hope not. Right? That's not, the, that's not the discussion I have to have with myself, right? Got a great wife. Don't have to worry about that. I shall not steal. Well, what am I going to steal? You know, I mean, um, heck, when we did our Constitution and bylaws, I wrote in that little thing, you know, made sure it said that you don't commingle church and personal expenses. And I know the two items that belong to the church are in my garage right now, and they're only in there because I don't have storage room for them. But even when I go in there, I'm like, ah, you should be somewhere else, right? Because it's church property. shouldn't be in the, even if it's a pastor's parsonage garage. I have, I have a big barrier there when it comes to that, right? So I, I'm not too worried about that. Bear false witness. I'm not going to be on any witness stands. Have you guys done anything that I'm going to have to go to court for later and lie for you or anything, right? Hopefully no, right? So all of these things, Jesus is kind of letting them off the hook, isn't he? Right? What's the next verse? Go ahead and flip it over. The next verse he even says, honor your father and mother. I love my mom and dad, right? Love mom and dad. Great people. Couldn't live without them. Couldn't be born without them. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I don't hate any of my neighbors. So as long as I'm not hating them, we're good, right? I mean, there's a couple of them that are shady. You look at them when they go by, but you know, I, I still love them, right? So, so far, so good. He's given them all those. So when he says which ones, Jesus gives them the easy ones first. Okay, well, don't do these things. Okay, Okay, so far so good. Jesus, I've got that covered. So, next, verse 20. He says, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what do I still lack? What I like about that answer there is he knows that keeping the rules didn't fix anything. Right? He knows that keeping all the rules that they had set out, you know, it didn't actually, it's not what he's looking for from Jesus. Sometimes as a pastor, I told this to somebody today, that sometimes as a pastor when people come to you, they'll tell you about something in their life that they think is a little on the edge, right? And what they're really trying to get is my, you know, hey, you know, go in peace, my brother, go, you know, what I'm saying? They're trying to get a little seal, okay, well, pastor didn't come down on me for it, so I guess it's okay that I keep, you know, robbing the ice cream truck when it comes by in the afternoon, I don't know. Um, although I'm pretty sure if somebody said they were doing that, I'd be like, you really need to repent of that one, okay? You really need to restore that money to the ice cream driver. But he wasn't doing that with Jesus. He wasn't coming to Jesus to say, hey, Jesus, I've kept all the rules, right? Does that mean I'm in? Because he's asking, what do I still lack? He knows that in spite of all the stuff he's done and kept the laws, he goes to church every Sunday, shows up in the synagogue, he's there doing what he's supposed to do, and yet he feels lost. Do you know you can go to church your whole life and come out of that thing feeling lost? Right? What do they say? That going to a church doesn't make you a Christian anymore than standing in your garage makes you a car? Right? 
You have a lot of people going to church and, you know, and then people come out saying, well, you must be a Christian, you go to church. Well, not necessarily. I hope we have some sinners in our church. I don't want to be alone, right? <laughs> I hope we have some people that are going through some stuff in our church. I don't want to be the only one, right? And there are people that are going in your church, and one of the things is they might be at a different stage in their walk. They may not have gotten to the place you're at yet. They might still be struggling with some things that maybe you've gotten over, and yet there's a side of us that wants to say, you know, well, they sin differently than I do. They're probably not where I'm at yet. We have a little hierarchy in our our mind, right? Um, Ever had somebody speak a word over you or go to pray for you, and you're thinking about all the bad stuff they've done? Anyone? Anyone? You're like, you're praying for me? Okay, go ahead. I'll let you pray, you know, kind of patent, right? Because we think God can't use them with what's in their life, but we expect God to use us with what's in ours, right? So, What we've inherited in the church is that same mentality that we have a measuring stick that we're going to hold up against everybody, and if you do these things, right, then you're okay. I always like to say that God only gave Adam and Eve one rule in the garden, and they broke that, right? Don't eat from the tree. They ate from the tree. Well, you broke that rule. I'll give you another rule. I'll give you these Ten Commandments. Don't break them. They broke all the Ten Commandments, sometimes all in the same day, right? Just break, 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 boom, checking them off, right? So then Jesus comes, and he says, I'll give you two right? Love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And we even struggle with those two. Because what we want is we want the list. I want to know, Jesus, what is the one good thing that you and I are cool if I can just do this one good thing? And that's not how it works. Now, listen, I'm not talking about salvation. I've said this before. Hell is super easy to get out of. And if your only point in coming to Christ is get away from hell, congratulations, go home, watch some sports, we're done here, right? Because he doesn't want anybody to go there. And if you call on his name, then he'll let you out, right? He doesn't want anyone going there. He makes it as easy as possible so that anyone at any stage in their life can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. But to be a disciple, to be a Christian, a Christ follower, someone who looks at what Christ did, how he walked, the things he, the the people he healed, the blind saw, the lame walked. He could walk up to somebody and know what was going on in their life, and she would say something like, I don't have a husband, and he goes, you're right. You've had several husbands, and the one you're with now isn't even your husband, and to know that and say it in such a way that she doesn't feel like he's turning me away but that he accepts me even though I've been through some stuff. If you want to walk that kind of walk with that kind of anointing, there's a different kind of thing you're going to have to do in your life. And if you're still asking the question, what is the one good deed I can do, Lord? Because see, the problem with this is we get to the part about the money and he turns away from the money and we make this about money, right? Oh, well, he was rich. And so he turned away from Christ because he was rich. Go to the next verse. It says, it says, when the young man heard, wait, go back one. Thank you. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And then next he says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And we think it's all about the possessions. It's about the rich, right? Because Christ said, you follow the other commandments. Well, I'm going to give you this commandment, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then we're good. And so we make it about the money thing. Okay, well, now every Christian from now on has to sell everything they have and give it to the poor, or you're not actually following Christ like Christ follows, right? You know, there are people who've actually done that, right? The St. Francis of Assisi is a great story if you ever want to read it, because he literally did that. He literally sold everything. He actually went and begged in the streets, and all the money he got from begging, he went and gave to people poorer than himself, which was pretty low on the totem pole, right? But it wasn't about the possessions. 
It wasn't about him being rich. Because let me tell you, let me let you guys in on a little secret, okay? If you're here and you're on a fixed social security income or a fixed income or you're on state help or you're, you're you know, we, whatever we want to draw the bottom line in our society for income at, you know what? You're still richer than 80% of the world. And I'll tell you what, you're richer than everybody in that story. Because <laughs> wasn't one person in that story that could go home and turn on a faucet and get water out. Wasn't one person in that story that could take food home and stick it in a refrigerator. There wasn't one person in that story that was driving anywhere. Amen? It wasn't about the money and it wasn't about the riches. It was about that there was one thing in this guy's life that he was still tied to. It was about that there was a thing in this guy's life. There was a line that he would not cross. There was a place he would not go. And if you really want to follow Christ, there's always that thing that you don't want to do that you have to do. We cheapen grace by letting people think that coming to Christ is going to be an easy thing. What rules do you have to follow? You have to follow all of them. What do you have to give up? You have to give up everything. Any piece of you that you keep from Christ will be a stumbling block that will keep you from becoming what you're supposed to be. And yet your whole life, you're going to find out there's one more block that you've got to move out of the way that's between you and God. And you finally get that thing and you work on that thing and you push it out of the way. And you're like, whoo, I'm done. And then right in front of you is another block and you've got to get through that too. Amen? Oh, no. You're like, come on, preacher. Tell me it's easy. It is not. I can't lie to you. I'd be, I'd be breaking that lying one, and I'm trying not to do that today. If I could knock out those five, check it off my box, amen? So let's go back to this be perfect. Let's go back to chapter five. We're right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is the hardest preaching in the entire Bible. We're going to back up to get some context here all the way to 21. 40-something verses. How fast can I read, D? You know I can read fast, right? I don't want to read all of them, but I'm going to start with this. If you look at verse 21, verse 27, verse 31, verse 33, verse 38, verse 43, they all say the same thing. You have heard it was said. See, Jews loved rules. <laughs> Jews loved rules so much they had the fence post laws. And what that meant was you had the Old Testament, right? Well, around the Old Testament, they came up with all these laws that if you didn't break any of these laws, then you wouldn't break any of the other laws. The big one were the Sabbath laws, right? Because the Sabbath laws were so specific, they would say you couldn't tie a knot on a Sabbath day that you couldn't untie with one hand because then you'd be working on the Sabbath day. You wouldn't be keeping it holy. You broke the Sabbath day. If you break one law, you might as well break them all. So now you've tied a knot that's too tight and you might as well have murdered somebody today. Right, that that's literally. The, I and I hate to say this, but I've had some very well-meaning but very legalistic Christians try to take me down the same path. That if you break one law, you've broken all the laws. So if you do this one thing that that you know is is kind of you know that I don't think is right in your life, and and it was them and not the Bible telling me right, then it might as well you might as well have murdered, you might as well have cheated on your wife, you might as well have stolen something. How many times has somebody taken the? Um, Whatsoever good, whatsoever is good, whatsoever is pure, whatsoever is holy, if, if there be any good in that, think on these things. How many people have beaten someone over the head with that verse? I have. Listen, back when I was newly saved, hey, that's not pure, holy, and just. What do you, you know, what are you doing that for? I remember a young, arrogant me, 17 years old, maybe 16 years old. I got saved at 15, and I was just on fire for God, and this other kid got saved, and he was also not on fire for God. You know, I love him, and but, you know, I was looking at his life, and I looked at him one day, and I was like, how do you know you're even saved? You know how long I've regretted that? I'm 44, and I still regret saying that. 
Because I looked at someone else who wasn't where I was at, who wasn't doing what I was doing, and I said to them, how do you even know you're saved? Look at how you act. Look at what you do. And if that person is turned away from God because of what that 16-year-old said, I still know I'm going to stand before God and have to, have to, you know. And God's seen my heart, man. I have repented, and I pray for that kid all the time. I see him on Facebook every now and then. I pray for him on Facebook. I'm like, Lord, don't let me be the one that messes up, right? <laughs> but let's go back here because he said the thing about murder, right? Murder is easy. Well, let's go back to verse 21. You have heard it said in days of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell, to the hell of fire. So that if you are offering your gift at the altar, and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go. I'm really good at not murdering. I am not always good at controlling my tongue when something makes me mad. Right? I, I joke with Kristen because sometimes I'll confess her sins up here. So I had to confess this. Friday night, <coughs> I got a text from, uh, from Brian at the Grove. And he's like, we're going to have a prayer meeting on Friday. And I was like, oh, I want to go to that. It's going to be nice. I just kind of want to get away at someone else's church and go pray, right? And it's going to be at, uh, I think, 5.30 was fellowship and 6.30 was a prayer meeting. And I'm home at 5 and something happened. And it was something stupid. But the first thing that came out of my mouth was an angry word at my wife. And guess how that always turns out? How many of you can give an angry word to somebody and get a pleasant word in return? Anyone? Anyone? No, no. So then she said something, and I said something. Next thing you know, I'm sitting there fuming, and I can't go to a prayer meeting now, right? I'm like, well, what am I doing? Well, I might as well just change clothes, get back in, because I'm not going anywhere, right? I had to go back to my wife and get forgiveness. I had to go back to her and make restitution, because that thing was just wrong in me. But the funny thing was, it came out so quick right? And yet here I am a preacher and I'm going to go pray. And let me tell you, God used me that night, right? Because Brian's like, I'll go up there and pray. And I go up there and pray. Spirit of God moves in this place, right? That's what I do. That's what God has for me, right? God says, David, I'm going to set you somewhere. My words are going to come out of your mouth and people's lives are going to change. But instead of his words, it's angry words. And if I use those kind of words with my wife, I can't use his words in a pulpit, can I? But that's also why I'm not afraid to confess my faults because my faults have no power over me because I'm free from the bondage of sin. Because even though it can catch me in a moment and it can make me stumble, it can't hold me down. Because the only thing stopping me from being where I need to be is going back to her and saying, I'm sorry. And I'm going to change and I'm going to take this thing and I'm going to put it under the blood and we're going to get past this and I'm going to become a better person. Now it's taken 21 years. I'm getting better, right? <laughs> and that will be the last time I ever say something mean to my wife ever again. Amen. Um, <laughs> and if you believe that... Um, we're claiming it by faith. We're claiming it. You know, sometimes you just start by faith. God, that is the last time I am going to do that thing. And you know what? If you do it again, you make that the last time too. You know that? If you get that thing in your life that you're just stuck on, right? That sin that you're just tired of telling God you're sorry about it. You're just like, like you, can't even, you can't even keep a straight face when you're like, Lord, forgive me because you've done this before, Right? And you're like, how am I going to ask you, Lord, to forgive me for the anxiety where I worried about this and took it out of your hands and obsessed about it until it gave me ulcers and rashes and all kinds of things, Lord. Forgive me, but I'll probably do this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But you know in your heart that you're still pointed towards that thing. Well, let me tell you something. You just make it the last time each time. Amen? Righteousness is not measured in how many times you fall down. Righteousness is measured in how many times you get back up. Amen? Amen. <laughs> it's 
Sorry, a little thought came into my head. Um, so adultery, right? Verse 27, you've heard that it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Verse 31, it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate. But I say that anyone who divorces except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and, and whoever marries a woman commits adultery too. So, oh, so it says, you shall not swear falsely, bear false witness, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And then in 38, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. And if anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, you walk two with him. Give up, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who borrow from you. 43, for you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. (laughs) Being perfect is not an unattainable goal. The reason we struggle with it is because we equate perfection with sinlessness. And that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying that the person in all these verses who, who doesn't, you know, that when you get angry, you sin. When you lust, you sin. When you do this, you sin. When someone sues you, you've got to give them more than they're asking you for. What he's saying is it doesn't matter what the rules are because you're above the rules. Do you know why you're above the rules? Because you have grace. See, here's the thing. What are rules to kings and queens of the kingdom that is to come? There's a whole theory in the church about whether or not when Jesus came, he was coming to establish a kingdom on earth or he was coming to establish a spiritual kingdom. Now, we in the Protestant faith, and I don't know if you know we take this for granted, but we take it for granted because we see bodies break down and people grow old and we die and Christ hasn't come yet, so we'd say that the kingdom is to come, right? But there are some people like in the Catholic and the Episcopalian, and they say that he came to establish a kingdom here and the church is built so that the church can establish the work of God on the earth so that we can build a kingdom here that reflects the kingdom there. Now, which one of us is right? We both are, right? That not only do we have a kingdom to come and in the kingdom to come, we're going to be revealed as sons and daughters of God, but we're also to build his kingdom here because the church is the coming of the kingdom of God. Let's go back. Let's go back. Where are we at? Matthew 19. Got your finger there? Get down to verse 22, and he he turns away. Verse 23, and Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when the disciples heard this, they were astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Do you know why that is? Because how many of you would say, if I said, hey, rich people are going to have a hard time getting into heaven, you'd be like, well, wow, if rich people can't get in, then none of us can. Doesn't make sense to us, right? Well, here's one of the things you got to know about the Jewish culture at the time, is that in order to have a synagogue, you had to have a certain number of men of leisure, which meant you had to have a certain number of men in the community who didn't have to work to earn a living. They were people that were wealthy enough that they could actually have time to form the synagogue. So most of your Pharisees were, guess what? 
They were rich. Right, because they were the people of leisure that had time to study the Word of God, that had time to devote themselves to the temple, to the synagogue, things like that. So when it says, if a rich can't get it, if a rich guy can't get in, then how can I get in? Because they looked at the rich people who had time to do all these things, and they're thinking, wow, I'm just a working Joe. i got to go out and fish to earn a living. How in the world am I going to have time to become what I'm supposed to be in order to enter in the kingdom of heaven? And then what does Jesus say? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit in his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit an eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. You are the coming of the kingdom of God. I had that little vision of, anybody seen Jurassic Park and the dinosaurs coming? They had their little cup of water there, and how do they know the dinosaurs coming? The water starts to ripple, right? That little movement in the water, boom, boom, boom. The footsteps of the monster are coming. But think about this. The ripples in the church, the way the Holy Spirit moves, every time we raise our hands, every time we speak in tongues, every time the Spirit flows through us and we say a prophetic word, every time we pray for one of our brothers or sisters, and all of a sudden we're saying words that we didn't know we could say, all of a sudden things are coming out of us that we expect, all of a sudden the power of God is flowing through that. We are the ripples of the coming kingdom of God. That God is coming back to earth and he's coming back to find a people who look like his kingdom is going to look, who behave like his kingdom is going to behave. When we want to talk about rules and things like that, what are rules to kings and queens, people who are called to rule over the nation that is to come because we reflect the spirit of God and the character of Christ that he has put in us. We are the ripples. We are the first moving. We are the vanguard. We are going to be what it looks like when he finally walks on this earth. Let me tell you something. Sometimes you look at your brothers and sisters and you're like, I don't know if I want to spend eternity with them. Come on. You're like, oh my gosh, forever, really? But you know there's something inside of them that maybe you don't see yet that God is working on and he's building. It's like a little bitty fire and he's just blowing on it and he's just blowing on it and he's just putting a little more fuel in it and he's just adding a few things to it and eventually when you see them revealed in the glory of God, when he illuminates everything, think about that. I always think, oh wow, God's going to illuminate trees and, and benches and carpets and everything gives off light in the kingdom of God, right? It says the glory of God illuminates everything. You know, it's going to illuminate us right? It's going to shine through us so much that we shine out. Like Moses coming down from the mountain where the radiance was too much for anyone to bear with their waking eyes. They couldn't even look at him and he had to wear a veil. And do you know that inside of you is something that the glory of God is going to connect with in such a way that one day when that is revealed in you as a son or daughter of God, that people here wouldn't be able to look you in the eye because of what he has done in you. Did you know that? You were so stuck on rules right? What a petty thing. And we're worried about whether or not someone's wearing a dress or a skirt, right? We're worried about whether or not somebody has too much makeup on. Guys have it easy. I don't remember. We, had, we didn't have a lot of rules for guys. Then there was a time where you had to have a beard, right? And Jake would be far more holy than me. Paul would be more holy than me. I can't, I got too much Indian in me. I can't grow facial hair. We just, you know, this is, this is the best I can do, right? 
What a petty, stupid thing to be wrapped up in all the rules and all the regulations that people try to put on you to tell you that if you don't do what I do or if you don't act like I act or if you don't worship like I worship or if you don't sing like I sing, then you're less a child of God than I am when there is something inside of you that is so glorious that mankind could not bear it if it were fully revealed. We are the coming of the kingdom of God because he is coming back. And we're going to look like he looks, and we're going to be like he is. And when he comes back, <laughs> you know, people that you wouldn't think he'd put in charge, he's going to put in charge. There's going to be some people in the kingdom of God that you are pretty sure you were better than, right? You're going to say, I don't know how high up I'm on the totem pole, but I'm above so-and-so, and yet they're going to be the ones that God calls because God doesn't see like we see, and he doesn't call like we call, but he makes the first last and the last first. And I know that, you know, the more glory I get in earth and the more, you know, I do and I, you know, that that means in heaven I may be a janitor, and I'm okay with that because I know that wherever he is, I want to be, and whatever I'm going to do there, I'm going to do there, and I'm going to shine there like I shine here because God has put it in me to do that. Amen? Let's all stand. Praise team, if you want to come up here. I just want to give you a moment to process it, a moment to think about it, and a moment to picture it. That with your head bowed and your eyes closed, that you just try to get for a second a vision of what it's going to look like when you finally stand before him. And he's not going to worry about how you dressed or how you looked or whether you had a tattoo or whether you did this or whether you do that. He's going to look for himself inside of you to see how much you reflect who he is. And let me tell you, I've always had this vision of standing before God one day, and I'm standing in the full armor of God. And of course, in my mind, I love the old medieval knight, so I always picture it like a medieval knight. And you have the kind of people that stand before him with their polished armor and their dress swords, and everything is in perfect shape, and they look exactly like they're supposed to look. And then standing beside him is the one who's been wounded, the one who's been hurt, the one who's waded through battles, the one who's had his sword chipped, the one who's had his shield cracked because it's been under the fire of the enemy, the one that had to wade out where people People wouldn't go because you had to go and find the one that was lost instead of staying with the 99 and you're going to stand beside that person and they're going to feel small because they never got in the battle. And you're going to have different kinds of swords. You're going to have the sword in the sheath that was never pulled out, that rusted in its scabbard because it was never used. 